This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby. And I'm Adam Bubb. And First Act is the podcast where we dig deep into the origin stories of Australia's most fascinating movers and shakers in business and life. Oh, Sess, we've done more than 30 interviews, more than 30 definitely, this season, and I honestly feel like I have an aha moment every single week from the environmental changemakers to marketing geniuses to master chefs. I walk away from each interview with a fresh perspective or idea or a quotable quote I want to put up on a vision board. <laughs> so we've, we want to inspire you with these stories. So today's guests actually couldn't be more fitting for that, right, Sess? Absolutely, Adam. Now, our next guest is Mark Dobkins. Mark is the founder and strategic director of Forever Projects, a not-for-profit organisation that helps Tanzanian families get the skills and support that they need to choose a new path and break the cycle of poverty. Mark and his wife Anna founded Forever Projects after moving to Tanzania to add to their family by adoption, and the three-year process opened the couple's eyes to the millions of young Tanzanian children who are orphans and the tragedy of so many women dying in childbirth. Now, upon their return to Australia, they began the work to launch Forever Projects to help children and families in need. And to date, over 900 children, probably more, but that's the latest stats that I could see, have benefited from their efforts. So welcome, Mark. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to join you in this conversation. Mark, uh, it's it's an honour to have you on our podcast. We're really excited to, to hear about your backstory. Now, we always start our first act with a first act icebreaker. Your icebreaker question for today is, if you could take over Twitter, what would you do with it? Oh, great question. Maybe I'd just double the number of characters and see what happened. <laughs> <laughs> just That's just kind of turning it into Facebook? Yeah, but there's no, yeah, look, let's just, let's, we can do an experiment, right? We can just see what happens or we could halve it. We could, yeah, I'd, I'd, with that much power, I'd probably need to take some more thought and have some more <laughs> reflection though. <laughs> <laughs> I know, so, so you're not, um, you're not going to challenge Elon Musk anytime soon, are you? Maybe I'll call someone that's more capable than me to take him on, but that wouldn't be a bad idea. <laughs> you, might, you, you might do a better <laughs> job with it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'll, I'll benefit from their better use of that platform, let's just say that. <laughs> well, let's, let's dig into a little bit about, uh, about you and what you do. Uh, so today you run a social enterprise, but was social injustice something that you knew much about growing up? Did you, did you come from a family that was passionate about righting, righting wrongs in the world? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, it's, as I've um, reflected on this, the older I've gotten, the further down the track we've gotten for projects, I've realised the answer is yes uh, and, and not in the way you'd think. So uh, I grew up um, son of a uh, refractories manager at Blue Scope Steel in Wollongong. Um, my mum staying at home looking after kids, but she'd had a really difficult um, journey with breast cancer when I was, I think she was first diagnosed when I was in year five and then again more seriously in year eight. 
um, and, and was lucky to kind of beat that a number of times. But I remember uh, just seeing the way she bounced back from that initial kind of mastectomy and, and and what she did with that, which was to kind of go, well, I know what it's like now to be um, suffering from cancer and what's it like to be a woman who's just been diagnosed. And so she joined this community of women who got bedside with women and supported them and then, you know, raised funds for cancer research. And I think just as a teenager growing up, I just noticed that that's what she did and that's kind of became normal. You know, you, you step up and where you can um, show compassion and act justly for people to alleviate suffering where you can. So I think that's been a really um, indirect but huge part of, yeah, the, the shaping of me in, in showing up the way we do, for sure. Was that your earliest memory then of, of, of someone creating a social impact? Yeah, I th- and I think too um, probably in the innocent way she stumbled into it. It wasn't going, I'm going to start a charity, and, and she didn't. She, she joined the um, Illawarra Cancer Carers Network and so she, she didn't start anything but she just thought what's the, what's the next right thing to do and it's to find a woman who's in a position like I was and how do I get beside her and, and comfort her and care for her? And then just taking the next step after that. And I think that's all, all great change starts with just what's the next step, right, that we, we can take to get towards better. Yeah. Yeah, it starts from a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and often it's, it's something that it can be something personal, but or it can just be that you're moved by, moved by mm-hmm. other people's stories, just empathy, really. Yeah, 100%. So... You're a teacher by profession, in fact. Uh, alongside Forever Projects, you still teach to this day. What, how does that play into, you know, your desire to, to kind of have an impact on, on young people and, and how they think and, and the future, really? Yeah. Yeah, I still teach part-time mathematics. I actually just came from teaching some classes this morning and then part-time with my work at Forever Projects. But I think as a, similarly, like as I've reflected on what's in common in the way that I show up in both those roles, uh, there's a great quote from one of my heroes, Seth Godin, uh, in marketing. He he defines leadership as people who create the conditions where people choose new actions, and I think that's what I'm doing in the classroom. I'm I'm not. You can't change people. I can't make a kid do his work, and I can. You know, you could have watched my class this morning and seen that was true. But you can create the conditions by which they're more likely to make a decision that's better for them, in a way that's not about solving Pythagoras' theorem or you know learning algebra but more about learning how to learn and learning how to bounce back from failure and and all that sort of stuff so kind of coaching and I think that's there's a lot of similarities in the way I show up as a teacher and the way I show up as a founder and leader at Forever Projects and trying to create those conditions where um, obviously the women in the projects that we're funding but also the donors here in Australia and beyond can can um, benefit from the conditions we're creating as a charity and, and, and take actions that um, yeah, will create impact and also meaning for them too. What do you say to those kids in the classroom that are like, oh, I'm never going to use this. This maths is stupid. <laughs> I, I say you're 100% right. You are never going to use it. And then I pause and they're like, what? Did he just say that? <laughs> and then and then I say, now let's just, you know, some people will use some of this maths, but most of you will use very little of it. But what you will use is learning how to learn. And if you can learn how to learn something that's difficult and that you don't, actually love, um, but you've learned that skill of learning something new and pushing through the hard part, then you are a learner and you're then when you put yourself into a new position later on, um, when you really need to learn something because you're passionate about or you need to, like then you've built that skill. And and I think that's something that they really understand and they, they can see you're not just pushing a system on them that they don't believe in and so on, but you, you found a way to go, well, what what's the essence of learning and, 
and what's the magic in a classroom and how do we celebrate and focus on that despite what the system's pushing kids towards increasingly in education. Yeah. I've got to put my hand up and say that maths was not my favorite <laughs> subject uh, growing up. However, as an adult, I look back on it and I always think the one thing I always remember is the working, like show yeah. the working, how you're doing an equation. And, the, and that is something that you remember throughout your life in whatever, whatever career you're doing is, you know, show the working. It's actually the journey of how you, how you got to your decision, mm. the rationale, the logic. That's powerful. Yeah, definitely. Now, you're a father. You've got six kids. Like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> I don't know how you do that. Yeah, I've got two and pull. that's enough. <laughs> um, anyway, th- three of them uh, came to you through adoption um, whilst yeah. you were living in Tanzania. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey, about the moment that you and your wife, Anna, decided to go down the adoption path and kind of why you landed on Tanzania and, and adopting a yeah. child from yeah. there? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, There's a moment when I remember my eldest, who's now 16, was just six months old and uh, Anna had just fed him and put him to sleep and, you know, he's in his little bassinet next to us on the couch and we're watching TV or something at night. And we watched this documentary called The Dying Rooms and it was about the state of an orphanage in a developing country and these volunteers in is there. Are the China of, one? Sorry to interrupt yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's so full on. Uh, have you seen it? Yeah. That's why I was just yeah. thinking that was. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you can, you can imagine watching that and seeing these kids literally rocking themselves to death because they've got no care and they just, you know, put away, put to the side. Um, and obviously there's lots of complex reasons why that was happening, but it shouldn't have been happening. We're watching that and just watching our six-month old son just going, how is this the same planet? These are both babies and and this doesn't seem okay. And that was the kind of seed I think that was planted in our hearts to think about what it looked like to contribute as a family to kids who didn't have that hope of a family of their own. Um, so we kind of looked at potentially foster care or adoption in Australia, but we felt strongly about inter-country adoption um, whole long story short, we uh, decided that we were also you know, keen to live abroad at some point and move. So we decided let's think about moving somewhere and working as, you know, in education. My wife's a school counsellor and psychologist by background. So let's move overseas for a couple of years with our young kids who were four months at the time and then um, foster and adopt children who needed a family in a different country. Um, and Tanzania was one that just landed ticked all the boxes in terms of it being safe, you know, compatible with our immigration laws, a place that we could get work. Um, and particularly there was organisations there that we were really confident in that there were, you know, that they were really ethical and that there were kids that, I mean, we all know that there's kids who legitimately need a family, but we've all heard of organisations that um, are trafficking children where they're, they're actually profiting off that. And so we were very aware of that. And um, yeah, and, and there was an organisation, particularly the one we eventually adopted from in Tanzania that really, we felt very strongly about and aligned with, with, its, with its values. So that was what drew us there, yeah. As a Westerner, I imagine that your lived understanding of poverty was pretty limited until you moved to Tanzania. So can you tell us how that move impacted you and what you learned about child poverty and the outcomes of women and children in Tanzania? Yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, yeah, we just went into it, not completely naive, but pretty naive in terms of not... Um, not so much understanding poverty itself, but just what were the circumstances and the conditions that were causing families to be separated and, and, and families to be in poverty to the point that, you know, giving up your child would seem a better option for you as a family. And so that was something that we 
just came to learn about, especially um, while living there, obviously, and, and, and whether it was in the city we were living in or discussions with people, you know, just shopping down at the local market, just all the different um, bits and pieces of the puzzle come together and you see that there's institutions there that were kind of um, on their way to kind of being formed, but the independence movement in the 60s and 70s uh, with, with a lot of these African nations, like they, they were trying to rebuild these institutions that the colonists had kind of started building but then just left them when they left those countries and it didn't suit them anymore to, to hold them. So that these poor nations are just in, um, inheriting these half-baked institutions that weren't able to support people in crisis at scale. Um, so I think seeing both the micro and macro um, circumstances around that. But then when you think about it from a personal perspective, like I remember the day we walked out of the baby home starting the fostering process with our three kids and you walk past 57 others who aren't going to that family and that's the the moment that stayed with us not just while we are living there but years later moving home and thinking like what would need to have changed in these kids and our kids' biological mum's story so that they never need to be abandoned in the first place. And a big part of it was access to nutrition. So if a, uh, if a woman's unable to lactate and feed her newborn, the alternative to nutrition is like completely unaffordable. So here, one of the options would be formula milk if someone couldn't breastfeed. And obviously breast milk's hugely, um, like is the main priority obviously and, it's in, and first and foremost. But um, like here, a tin of formula milk might cost 35 bucks, right, at Woolworths. And uh, in Tanzania, if an average Tanzanian was to go and buy one of those, if they, if they didn't have access to nutrition, it would cost their entire week's wage on average. So imagine you're going to Woolworths and seeing $1,000 on a tin and, um, you know, it's like it just that's the moment where you go, wow, okay, I can see why. If, if you are in a position where you can't feed your newborn, um, they're quickly losing weight and there's no support from a government perspective and you just don't have the money, then poverty is a huge obstacle to, to families staying together. Yeah, pretty tragic. Can you tell us what happened next? So you came home to Australia with your mm. adopted children. Uh, you realised there was so much more you wanted to do to help help other women and children out of this cycle of poverty. What happened next? How did you get your friends and family involved? Yeah, it was, it was really through sharing the vision of the local teams on the ground in Tanzania. And it's really important, I think, when we share about forever projects, then we're a fundraising organisation and, and really shining awareness on the work that's done by local teams, but they're locally led. And um, so these teams are already noticing all of this, obviously, themselves and thinking, what could we do to catch women in crisis before the point that the families separate and so they had a vision for this pilot program of a 12-month program um, that women could kind of join have nutrition provided crisis support to get back on their feet and then set up in a small business to then provide for their family independently and, and within a 12-month period and they'd started testing this even when we were still living over there and they were noticing it was working and so as we said to them look we're moving home what can we do to continue to support they said we want to raise funds for this part of our work this will reduce the number of orphans in the first place. And so we thought, well, you know, we didn't intend to get out and start a charity. We thought, let's run an event for 60 friends and family at a local friend's cafe in Wollongong. They said, you can have the space, have the food, all for free, do what you want. And we thought, well, you could do your status quo fundraiser, but let's use creativity and storytelling to really evoke the emotion that we experienced ourselves. So we got um, a good friend of mine, Ben, who's a beautiful designer and um, a few others involved. And we just created like an art gallery vibe in this cafe and we had 16 really powerful stories of women who'd broken that cycle of poverty, created a self-sustaining future and on the artwork, there was the story and then just the cost of the item, e.g. like a sewing machine or some startup capital, start a business at the market and then just invited our friends and family to donate 
if they felt inspired to um, without any guilt or obligation. And we raised like 16 grand in one night and we're able to send 100% of that over to Tanzania um, through connections there. And that quadrupled their initial pilot budget for the project. Um, and so that was the moment I think where we went, okay, this project is working. We've, we've got 16 really powerful stories of, of the initial women in that um, were part of that project. And there's people in Australia who want to be part of this, but they're not going to just give without thinking through what they're doing and if, if it's not a connection to them personally. And so I think that was the heart of, well, it definitely was the heart of for projects, just going, how do we use storytelling to inspire people here to give and connect them to what the impact of their generosity is and just how far that money goes. So that was the that was definitely the DNA for projects in that event right there. Yeah. So that was kind of the genesis of for Forever Projects. But when did you kind of formalize it and decide that rather than just this ad hoc, I'm going to hold an event and get my friends and family involved, when did you decide this can be so much bigger, it's going to be a not-for-profit, we're going to... Mm raise money, we're going to get as many people as possible involved in this this charity. Yeah, it, it was it was a moment in, I think it was the end of 2014 and the director of one of the projects on the ground had shared, you know, the impact that these, we'd done three annual events to date at that point and they'd said, well, here's our vision now to kind of scale further, not just in this one region that we'd adopted from, but kind of connecting with other partners throughout Tanzania that had that like-minded philosophy. And so they had a huge vision to scale up. And that was the moment where we thought, well, they want to do more. They're going to need more money. And and what we're doing is working here. How do we scale up? So that was the that was the point. It was like inspired by their vision to go, let's register as a charity. Let's try and do all year round fundraising and let's just throw mud at the wall and see what what sticks. Like any business starts, right? <laughs> One of the catchphrases of Forever Projects is using what's in your hands to make a forever impact. Uh, can you tell us yeah. what you mean by this? It's, it's not just it's not just about your, your money in your hands, but it's <laughs> or is it no. or is it? <laughs> well, it can be, but it can be more than that for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the genesis of that is at one of those annual events that we ran. Um, one of my mates, Matt, who's a really fantastic builder, was uh, giving a percentage of his profits from every house um, that he built. You know, to, to some of the projects, and he shared why he was inspired to give. And he's like, well, as I looked at what was in my hands, it was a hammer. And so I thought, how can I use my hammer and you know my, my, my skills to, to help? So obviously that led to profit, which he sent overseas. But that, that phrase stuck with our community. And we then thought, as we were trying to grow, let's commit to building a brand where we celebrate the people from people like Matt or people like Todd, who was a kid while you're eight class, great at trombone, would go into the mall and busk in the mall and donate his profits to us. Or um, Mel ran a cafe in Wollongong and just said, all right, today all profits going for projects. So people just everywhere started to see these stories. We we're posting on social media where we'd say, hey, check out what this person's done. Here's what this person's done. And and they'd come to us with their ideas. And, and that was how we kind of grew the community was through, yeah, just sharing inspiring stories like that. And, uh, and whether it's money, some people don't have the time or the, well, the skills that they want to use, but they're happy to give. Others have time. Others have skills, networks, connections. You're both doing this right now by generously hosting this conversation. Um, you're using what's on your, in your hands too. So it's um, yeah, that's definitely the way our community's grown. Mm, that really gives you something to think about. We have got more insights from Mark Tompkins coming up after this very short commercial break. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're back with Mark Dobkins chatting about his not-for-profit forever projects and how we all have the capacity to help those in need. But before the break, we were talking about um, using what's in your hand to make an impact. So if people listening want to get involved with Forever Projects, uh, what can they do? There's lots of ways they can get involved. So if it's if it's money and people want to give, um, a huge focus area for us at the moment is providing a really reliable um, and unrestricted runway of funds for our local partners to scale. So there's probably a lot of business owners listening and they know how important it is to have that funding as a base for your business and, and the local teams we fund are no different. And so if people felt inspired by this mission and wanted to get involved, giving monthly is such a great way to do that. Um, whether it's 10 a month or 100 a month or whatever it might be, it's the power of that collective giving. Um, and we you think about how many things we subscribe to, you know, Spotify, Netflix, City Morning Herald, whatever it might be, like um, the power of the subscription is in all those little 4 and $5 amounts pooling to give that organisation the opportunity to create value for everyone who is subscribing. It's the same with charity, I think. So that's one. Another one is our talent, whether it be our skills, so, for example, we just did a big campaign, Watch Your Kilimanjaro, and um, I noticed the first person you interviewed was Mel Perkins at Canberra, and we had a, we've got a lovely partnership starting with Canberra, and one of their brand marketing managers led our campaign as a skilled volunteer, and so that was a capability gap in our team we didn't have. And Bronny just corralled all of our creatives and set a campaign, go-to-market strategy, and amazing. And so she didn't give money, but that was worth a lot of money you know, from, from our perspective. Um, and then the third one could be time. So I mentioned that Watch Your Kilimanjaro campaign this October just gone. We've had, I think, 415 people conquered their own Kilimanjaro, whether it was swimming, running, riding, reading lots of books, um, but, you know, time-intensive stuff. Little um, 13-year-old Penelope did 18 kilometres with her brother Angus in the local pool down here and raised enough money for a whole family to go through the 12-month project. And so uh, time's another way that people can get involved, yeah. That's interesting. You mentioned the "What's Your Kilimanjaro" project because that is um, that's something that really connects people's actions to that storytelling element. You know, what can I do mm. off the back of hearing from these stories? The power of storytelling and narrative is so important in being able to drive action, isn't it? Hundred mm. percent. It's such a. I think we're, we're we're waking up to the power of story, and we're seeing that a lot in how people talk about marketing and strategy and so on. Because it's it's how we, you know, as a math teacher and when you tell a story to communicate, um, you know, a concept versus just information, it, it just a different part of the brain is activated. And I think understanding yeah, the, the kind of ingredients of the story, and that, you know, there's a lovely quote I love from a guy called uh, Donald Miller. He wrote a book called um, Building a Story Brand. And he says stories about a character who wants something but then has to overcome conflict to get it. And if there's no conflict, no tension, no friction, no struggle, no obstacle, then there is no story. And so... Um, and but but a character has to you know overcoming that obstacle they have to meet a guide and the guide must have empathy for them as a character and know what it's like to be them but also not just that but the authority to say hey I've been in there before and here's how I've overcome it would you join me and so 
Forever Project's being really clear on our role in the story. It's we're not the hero. The hero is the the heroes, plural, like the women breaking the cycle of poverty, local partners walking alongside them, the generous donors in our community, and we're the guide, just standing back, trying to you know help all the different people in our community and and um, overcome the obstacles they're facing. So I think that in, in a business, you, you do see businesses right where they've got that the wrong way around, and they think they're the hero. Uh, but that doesn't look very good from a <laughs> consumer's perspective. It feels so opportunistic sometimes. We're seeing an amazing movement in in the corporate world of uh, wanting to help out and wanting to you know donate profits and and you know, be part of initiatives that help you know for social and you know, environmental corporate mm. responsibility. But some of it can just feel <sighs> a yeah. bit on the nose. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can service. kind of gauge the intent, can't you? Yeah, you can tell when it comes from a really authentic place, can't you? Yeah. 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 Well, I think you've definitely done a great job at being authentic in your storytelling and sharing what it is that you want to achieve with Forever Projects. And I think that's probably why so many everyday Aussies have jumped on board and um, helped to raise Mm. money. But you've also managed to get some interest from corporates as well, like you mentioned Mm. earlier, Canva, the great Aussie unicorn helping out, um, not necessarily with cash, but with time and expertise. So can you tell us a bit more about that kind of journey? How have you um, sought support from the big end of town? Yeah, I I think the best partnerships are values driven. So our values for projects are we want to operate from a place of abundance so we can be generous and not, you know, a lot of charities operate from a a place of scarcity and there might be scarcity but when you show up with your hands out it doesn't create long-term partnerships so i think thinking all right let's be generous in our partnerships and all of our dealings um and then secondly empathy what's it like to be the person we're in partnership with and so when you think about a canva where are they going and how even little forever projects how could we help with that and um, what we noticed is that they've got this two-step plan that, you know they're very vocal about being one of the most valuable companies in the world but also step two doing the most good they can. And so um, what what they're interested in is thinking about how can we highlight to people how not-for-profits are benefiting so much from their product, not in a kind of self-bragging way, but in a way that's actually true. And so they needed examples of not-for-profits in the way they were using Canva um, and, and stories that kind of helped with that. And they also needed opportunities for their volunteers to do skilled work um, in a way that wasn't, you know, there's nothing wrong with going and saying to your staff, hey, let's go and clean up rubbish or paint a fence. But if you've got really capable people in your company that want to use those skills for good. Um, you need not-for-profits that can show up and actually help you with that. Um, yeah, so I think us igniting that partnership and, and offering that sort of solution to some of their problems has been really key to them going, all right, this is, this is good. They're not just turning up asking for money. They're showing up with generosity and empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they can understand what kind of impact you're making. Uh, and mm-hmm. since you've launched, you've helped hundreds of women break the poverty cycle, which in turn has meant hundreds of families have been able to stay together. Uh, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that impact Forever Projects is yeah. making in Tanzania? And if anyone who works for a corporate is listening, <laughs> you know, maybe you want to put a, put a word in and see, and see if you can do more and help more. Definitely, yeah. So uh, since, we, since we started funding this work, there's been now more than 1,300 women and more than 1,700 babies who have been empowered to stay together as families. Obviously, some of these families have twins or triplets. And so when we think about 
going back to that day, we walked past 57 kids who weren't in that situation. There's 1,700 babies now that we know that we've helped contribute to them being with their biological family, which is just huge. And we've seen the number of children at the orphanage that we adopted from halve since we adopted from there. So it's, um, these these families being caught before crisis point, which is so cool. Uh, and and so, yeah, the, the way that companies can be involved is awesome. I mean, there's a there's a startup. What we're really thinking us of ourselves from a project is more of a startup than um, than a traditional charity. I think that when you adopt startup principles, you're thinking about you know starting a business. You're thinking, okay, what problem am I solving for someone? Um, and how can I do that quickly? How can I learn as quickly as I can? Um, so one of the communities I've just joined is called Innovation Bay. It's a great startup kind of network for, for founders at various stages. And um, they very generously got involved in Watch Your Kilimanjaro um, as a company and, and raised $9,000 in October. And so this team is remote workers. They've got members in you know Brisbane, Sydney, Hobart, but they did this Kilimanjaro together, raised nine grand, and that's empowered seven families in, in Tanzania. And so um, what they were looking for was to you know do something together, have an impact, and we came along and said, hey, we can we can both benefit benefit from that, and um, and it's just lovely seeing that problem that they had being solved by us, and then them solving our problem too. So that's what the best partnerships are like, right? Where it's mutually beneficial. It's very tangible as well. I think that sometimes when people donate to a charity, they don't really see the impact of of their mm. money, but it, it seems very, very tangible with, with you guys. So I'm wondering, given how everyone's had to tighten their mm. their purses or their belts or whatever <laughs> the phrase may be uh, since the pandemic. How Did their that? digital bank accounts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, how has that impacted the work that you're doing at Forever Projects? Yeah. Well, we're probably fortunate in a way to be growing as a charity right at a time where all this uncertainty was unfolding. So this is just kind of normal <laughs> for us. Like I dropped out of um, full-time teaching to part-time teaching in January, 2020. So within a month, you know, you're six kids learning from home, trying to navigate a charity. Like <laughs> what have I done? Is this, <laughs> why did I, why did I leave full-time work now? But obviously that was the best time to, to do it because you had a lot more, a lot more headspace for things. Um, and we've been able to, uh, like in the 10 year, I think the first 10 years of for projects, we, we sent as much to Tanzania in the last two years as we had in the previous eight combined, even, th- even though we had a pandemic to deal with. And I think a big part of that was, for example, through the Watch Kilimanjaro campaign and thinking, all right, well, how does this look and how do we talk about this in a pandemic compared to how we were talking about it before the pandemic and what problems does it solve now? And, and the problems that people had were motivation to get outside and move. How do I stay connected to my friends and family and colleagues? How do I still have impact when the world's going to, you know, going crazy? Um, and so we kind of let out with that as the invitation to watch Kilimanjaro and, and that was a um, really great thing. But then on the flip side, going into it this year, we've realized that a lot of the value that we were asserting in the pandemic isn't as valuable now. So people can go outside, they can connect. And so um, it was not harder to engage people to join, but it was harder to inspire people potentially to to give and we noticed obviously with interest rates going up average giving was down so you just take that as all businesses do and go okay there's some new information there how do we reflect on this and and improve the next time as well so um yeah i I think always noticing and reflecting and repeating right (laughs) so you you mentioned january 2020 was when you went full-time 
with Forever Project. So really, it's been a side hustle for most since 20, 2015 is when you launched for most of that time. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So I was full-time teaching up until end of 2019 and then then just half half my week teaching from, from 2020 onwards till now, half my week teaching, half my week on Forever Projects. Yeah. So I'm still part-time teaching part-time Forever Projects and, and building and we've tried to build a team around us and notice as a business, like what's the capability gaps that we have and how do we fill that and that i think a lot of charities assume that oh well, we'll get the founder to go full-time but uh that's the founder doesn't always have the capability that the you know organization needs so we've just tried to look at the capability gaps and try and you know get contractors and hire people for for those gaps um yeah and, and i think i know we touched on this earlier um around transparency but the other thing we've been thinking about is as we grow our team, uh, when people give to Forever Projects, they're giving with the intention of empowering women in Tanzania and not, you know, funding someone's wage in Australia. And so we, you know, there's a lot of obstacles around giving to charities when people think how much of this is actually going to the cause. Um, so we early on kind of segmented our operational costs and we asked those initial early kind of annual event um, donors that I'd mentioned earlier to, to, to form our core community. And they, these donors really generously fund our operational costs for projects that when we run a campaign like Watch Kilimanjaro from the public, we can say, hey, we've got operational costs, but they're covered by these core community members. So every cent you raise or give will go to Tanzania. And so that's, I think, made us feel um, much better about inviting people to give because the question of how much is going is just off the table. It's 100%. Yeah. So can I ask, what's your big dream for Forever Projects? Yeah, big dream in the next couple of years is really can we have such impact in Tanzania and, and continue to accelerate our local local partners' impact so that they can reach more villages and more cities and, and, and more women and children, um, but then also think about what's it look like to scale this further afield because uh, obviously this is not a problem just um, experienced in Tanzania. It's a, it's a global problem where you see poverty creating families being separated. And so I'd love to raise enough money to start connecting with impact partners beyond Tanzania as well. We're almost running out of time, but I, I'm really interested to know what your top tips are for staying purpose-driven and keeping mm. your keeping your eyes on on that goal of of uh, you know, of, ma- of making that change that you that you'd like to to see in the world. Yeah, I think I think it's being first and foremost crystal clear on what your values are. And what your mission is, and then that the organisation owns that. And so then, when you're making decisions, tough decisions around finances and resources and you know, goals and so on, like you can almost have a conversation with your organisation. So it's not like you're talking to your team about it, but your organisation is this living organism that's growing and it wants to manifest this impact in the world. And so, if you can separate yourselves from it and ask it what it's trying to do based on its mission and values, um, I think you can make better decisions for, what, for for how to kind of fuel and accelerate what it's trying to do. Um, and it takes a lot of the ego and that sort of stuff out of it as well. It's, it, can, it can be hard to not, you know, self-identify with the impact you're having and, and the organizations we're starting, right, with small businesses. But I think that's a really important piece of advice to be self-aware on early on um, so that it can be what it wants to be, yeah. Mark Dobkins, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been such a great conversation. Now, you can find out more about Forever Projects at foreverprojects.org. 
Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another fantastic First Act conversation. We can't wait to bring it to you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>